Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is audio archivist Bill Smith. But let's start here. An audio fingerprinting company called PEX looked at more than 1 million modified audio tracks that are in streaming services and are diverting revenue away from the rights holders. What does modified mean? Well, that's someone who takes your song, speeds it up, and then claims the song is theirs. Since it's sped up, the automatic copyright systems like YouTube's Content ID can't identify it. This winds up being millions of dollars that the original artists and songwriters don't receive. Pex looked at 20 streaming platforms and found that although you'd expect modified tracks to happen on user-generated platforms like YouTube and SoundCloud, it was also happening on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, and Tidal as well. The question is, why aren't full files checked for modification each time they're uploaded? Why are sped-up songs all the rage on TikTok and Spotify, but those platforms don't use technology that's good enough to identify speed and pitch changes? Why are cover versions of songs not better identified? And most importantly, is this all being overlooked on purpose? It appears that there's an alarming amount of modified music that's slipping through the cracks and it's generating millions of dollars of revenue, but that revenue is going to the wrong people. We have a lot of clever technology available that can fix this problem. It's time to put it to use. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that my new Music AI Handbook is now available. It's packed with information about how artificial intelligence can help you with new song, lyric, mixing, and mastering ideas, as well as music marketing to help get your music out to the audience that you deserve. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash AI Handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash AI Handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. How old is too old to be a hit artist? When is a music artist's creative peak? Well, Chris Della Riva conducted a study that found that 52 of the top 100 best-selling artists released their best-selling album before the age of 30, with the median age coming in at 29. What's more, 95% of artists have their first number one hit between the ages of 20 and 30. And 48 of the top 100 best-selling artists in America released their best-selling album within five years of their debut. Only six artists released their best-selling album after their 16th year in business. Those six are Taylor Swift, Barbara Streisand, Eric Clapton, Willie Nelson, Michael Bolton, and Frank Sinatra. Now, you've probably noticed that most trends are driven by young people, and that hasn't changed over the last 80 years. This is now more true for single songs than for albums because most popular music is aimed at young people and its themes don't apply or appeal to older fans who have families and different concerns about their lives. The bottom line is that your odds of becoming a global music superstar are pretty slim to begin with, but they become astronomically small after age 30. That said, for most musicians, just making a living at something they love means they're a success. My guest today is Bill Smith, who spent most of his career as a recording engineer and mixer before transitioning into audio archiving. 
Bill started at United Studios Archiving in 2020 until a company that owned the legendary studio decided to close it earlier this year. Since then, Bill has started his own archiving business where he uses an unbelievably wide range of mostly obsolete machines over just about any format that you can think of. During the interview, we spoke about the preparation normally required before a tape can be transferred, his favorite types of clients, the thing about archiving that most people don't realize, a surprising format that he gets calls to restore, and much more. I spoke with Bill from his studio in Hollywood. What would you call yourself now? Are you an archivist? Well, I'm, you know, I'm calling myself, I guess, essentially what I always was, which is a recording engineer. And, but I'm also now, I guess, referring to myself as an archivist as, as well, archivist, however, you know, you want to pronounce that one. Um, and I've switched over to doing that more actually than actually, you know, than working on, on music. I'm still doing a lot of mixing for clients and things like that in a music record end of things, um, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, the archiving thing has really taken off and really taken over. And uh, I've been very uh, lucky and it's been very successful for me. And and I think it's a great thing in, in terms of just preserving not only the musical history. I mean, I'd like to look at the sort of the big overview. Uh, you know, the tagline is almost like uh, preserving the American musical heritage in a way, if you wanted to sort of put you know, that kind of button on it. And it's, um, and it's worked out great. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a fair amount of work obviously in it. So the reason why I ask you that question is when I think of an archivist, I think of someone that's actually taking any kind of recording and then storing it, putting it into a format that they could store. And you're sort of in the middle where you're taking old formats and reviving them in a way so people can play them back or, or transfer to another medium, right? Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. At the heart of it is taking the older tape-based formats, be it analog, digital tape, multi-track, two-track, ADATs, D88s, cassettes, anything, any tape-based format and moving that over into digital audio files, okay? Using Pro Tools as the front end, but landing in, in a WAV file format, which, uh, you know, won't deteriorate over time, okay? And you can make many copies of easily in store and things like that. The job is kind of twofold. One is just sort of doing the straight over transfers, and some clients want that, and that's all they care about. They just want to be able to sleep well at night knowing my data is safe and it's preserved and that's all they're interested in. Uh, other people want to be able to take these older assets and use them for re-release, monetize, okay? You know, in today's world with legacy editions and things like that, bonus cuts, outtakes, live material, things that were never gotten to. They want to take that and, and reuse it and monetize it. So some of those things require a little bit of extra work if you're going to do that. It's not only just archive and transfer, but then also, okay, are there any issues here? Okay, did the digital tapes have a dropout? 
God forbid, but does happen, okay, that we need to deal with. What was the state of the analog tapes, okay, especially older Ampex tapes and things like that, okay? Most things need to be baked at this time, even digital tape, okay, because everything is at a point where it's absorbed enough moisture over years, right, to result in what we call that sticky shed syndrome, yeah. okay, which is the binder layer absorbing moisture. And you can't play the tape, right? So you've got to bake it, you transfer it, and then you deal with whatever, again, anomalies you've got to deal with, uh, okay, from the original recording or what's occurred since then. Some tapes I get in are pristine, look like, you know, they were taken out of the box yesterday. Some things I get in, the tapes look like they were stored at the bottom of a river, okay? And they're just covered with mold and mildew and all kinds of funky stuff that you've got to spend more time and care with, right? Roll up your sleeves, get all that mold off there, clean it up, scrub, bake, et cetera, to get, to get, to the, get the tape to a point where you can actually even play it. When you do a transfer to digital, I assume you're doing it like at 9624, or are you doing it at a higher resolution? Or, or is it what the, whatever the client wants? Well, it generally whatever the client wants, wants in terms of that. The multi-track stuff, everybody wants, and I sort of advocate as well, just 2496. Yeah. That's, you know, that sounds great, okay? And, and is, you know acceptable i think by everybody in terms of a, of a quality some people want it at 192 for multi-track stuff i'm on the line about how much more are you actually gaining by going to 192 other than you know file sizes that are enormous so multi-track tends to be 2496 two-track stuff however will err uh, you know err on the side of the higher res okay and we'll do 192 a lot of the time, yeah. again, there's no, you know, perfect or, or fit for each client. Everybody wants things. That, I've had clients that have wanted it done for 16 bit 48 K, if you can believe that. Right. But it, it is what it is. It, that's what they're going to end up with or working in uh, on their end. So yes, I obviously want to do everything at as high a resolution as I can, but I have to work with the clients and ultimately what their needs are and their purposes that's really my job I, even more than let's get everything transferred as pristine and purely and one-to-one -one and all that yes you want to do that but you're really there like any other day to serve the client's needs and whatever they want wins let's go back here you work for united studios archiving first before you, you branched out on your own yes how long was that for that you did that? Well, I got the job at, you know, um, took the gig at United, I think uh, January of 2020, right before COVID, right before lockdown. Yeah. Basically about three months before. So it, January 2020 was lockdown was actually advantageous to me as it gave me a lot of time to be able to acquire all the gear and equipment that I needed. Okay. You know, I moved into the archiving end of things, the opportunity came up. I've been making records full-time as we both know for 35 years. There were a lot of issues uh, 
and reasons why I kind of wanted to transition out of doing that full time. Um, some health related, some other just at a certain point in life, the 12, 13, 14 hours a day, five, six days a week is, uh, you know, you kind of get over that, right? So you want a kind of a different sort of life. So uh, a lot of different reasons. The job came up, I took it. Um, I saw it as a vehicle to still be able to bring uh, my skill set and my knowledge and all my acquired knowledge of over 40 years of using all these different tape formats, uh, just making the records, right? Because yeah. you, uh, you, you kind of have to have that. So I took the gig then. Lockdown came, COVID. Uh, it was a great opportunity because I had to gather all the bits and pieces, all the various tape machines I needed, et cetera. So while everyone else was in lockdown, I was working away doing that, building, building up and building out. Okay, I was at United Archiving way back and there was a lot of gear there already. So you got more on top of it or did you have to replace some? I had to replace all of it because the gentleman who had been doing this first over there, all of that gear and equipment was all of his. Oh. It wasn't the studios. So when I went in the first time, there was, you know, an 827 and a 3348 sitting in the room and that was it. So I had to basically start from scratch and, you know, find all the two track machines, especially like things like the X80 two track Mitsu, which is a unicorn at this point, but I knew where I could get one and the x86 digital tape machines, the two tracks, uh, things like that. All the ADATs, Dolby SR, Dolby A and, uh, you know, an oven and just all the DAT machines up and running cassettes. And so I lived, you know, I basically started from zero, you know, from one and I had to go to a hundred <laughs> right wow. with it. So I didn't realize that. Then you start doing this. What surprised you? I'm sure that there was something where you went, oh, I never thought of that, or I never expected that, or I, this is different than I thought. What was that? In terms of the job and, and what you're doing each day, not a whole lot of surprises. I guess the biggest surprise I had was I thought various formats you wouldn't encounter too often. And what I've come to realize is that everything is wide open. Okay. Like I thought for sure, oh, the majority of things you'll get is 24 track or two track, and you won't get a whole lot of the sort of semi pro, I guess, which you would consider formats, you know, the half inch 16 track, yeah. half inch eight track, things like that. But it's actually been a very pleasant surprise in a way of how much of that kind of stuff, uh, dats as well, things like that, because you're doing work for the record labels. Okay. And that tends to be the more 24 track, 32 track, you know, 48 track digital multi-track stuff, and then two track mixes, things like that. But there's this whole other side that I had never considered, which is the guys who were, who are musicians now or not musicians started out though and you get calls from people that are you know i was in this band when i was 18 years old and i found all these tapes in my garage and i haven't heard these things in 35 years and man, it would be fantastic and it's all in sort of that more home type of a 
format, you know, that half inch 16, half inch eight yeah. and things like that. And I actually love those calls the most, okay? Because those are the calls. I mean, when you're doing the work for the labels, you're doing it for a specific reason, storage, long-term storage, archiving, they want to re-release things and that sort of thing. It's a business arrangement, right? And not really, I mean, you're personal in the fact you're, you're, you're communicating with people from the labels, but right. It's nobody's no one, no one from the label. It's not any of their music, but when you deal with an individual who's got this tape, I haven't heard in 30 years, uh, hell, can you do anything with it? And you get it transferred over for them and it sounds great. And, uh, you know, the excitement that it brings them is wonderful and and that's really i like that the most the the happiness that you can just see on someone's face of oh my god i can't wait to go home and listen to this and i gotta send it to all the guys that were in the band yeah. and yeah all that sort of thing that's that's a joyous thing to be able to to do to give someone that happiness even for just a little bit so i, I enjoy that a lot that's that's the most I think that was the most surprising, even more than the tape formats, the 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 ability to bring people happiness. And I, I wasn't expecting that. I thought it would just be sort of more cut and dry in ways. But that's that's one of the best parts of the job, actually. You were a very skilled engineer, recording engineer, mixing engineer. But were there new skills that you had to learn when you got into this? Yeah, I mean, I'm learning every day and I'm learning new things each day. Only in how to sort of deal and adapt with what is coming in in terms of the older tapes and things like that every day is like christmas you never know what's going to be in the box until you open it right and you take every tape on a, on a case-by-case basis uh i don't know that there was a whole lot of new skills in a way um as much as expanding on knowledge that already, you know, existed in my head way, way in the back. Cause you don't think about this stuff for, for years. So, you know, I didn't, right. Cause we were working in a, in pro tools, making records. And then, uh, so a lot of it sort of has been, you know, pulling out, oh, right. Okay. Here's how we have to deal with this and okay. And here's this tape and things like that. Um, in terms of just the day-to-day, I guess the, the newer skills I've had to acquire are more um, specialized. I don't know if you'd necessarily term it like a skill you could read in a book uh, sort of thing, but more how to deal with things like mold-covered tapes. Okay, you know, there's uh, you go and you read white papers from people that have come previous, right? Because you're kind of building on other people's knowledge and stuff. And, you know, you should treat it this way and do that and bake it here and et cetera. And what you find out is that, like anything, that looks great on paper. But in real life and in real practice, it's not necessarily uh, uh, applying all the time. So a lot of it, I guess the skill set is, again, relearning how to improvise and how do I creatively you know, overcome whatever issues I have, you know, because I, I approach the job a little bit differently than uh, say maybe uh, the library of Congress people or some people, you know, lab coats and white gloves. And, you know, they're very, uh, you know, gentle with the tape and things like that. Not to say I'm not, and I'm not always concerned 
uh, you know, with having complete and total care. But sometimes you have to kind of get in there and mix it up a little bit. You have to, in order to get the job done for the client, um, sometimes you have to treat the tape in a, what some people would think is an aggressive manner, okay? Just to be able to clean it and clean the oxide side and scrub it, right, with a text wipe and the back code and all that kind of things. You have to sort of really, you know, get in there and you can't be afraid, right? You want to treat the material and the tapes respectfully, but not so respectfully that you can't and don't get the job done for the client. Ultimately, you still have to do what you got to do to get the job done. And I think a lot of people who don't go back as far as I do, other people that are uh, doing this sort of a thing, who don't go back 40 years and who don't come from a world of making records and dealing with two-inch tape all day long, they don't realize how tough it is, right? Even the digital tape, it's tough. It's resilient. It's been around for 50 years, more, So, right? Some of these tapes you're transferring. And um, so you can, you, you, you do what you have to do in order to get uh, the, the job completed. Now, obviously, like I say, you don't treat every, you don't treat things in a disrespectful manner, but you do what you have to do. If you have to get in there and scrub it, you have to replace leaders and splices and, you know, you sort of have to mix it up a little bit. It's what's required. You know, you're not doing anything. Uh, some people have said to me, you know, uh, it's in how like they've seen pictures of some of the mold covered tapes I've had, hmm. you know, and they say to me, aren't you worried when you're scrubbing the tape and cleaning it and baking it? Aren't you worried you're going to damage the tape? And I look at them and I say that more than what, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, the stuff, right. <laughs> okay, there's nothing. It's covered in mold. It's been in someone's garage for 45 years. Okay. It's got sticky shed syndrome issues. It's got mold issues. It's got this. There's nothing I can do that's going to hurt it anymore than where the state it's in. Right now, the state it's in is unusable, right? So do I have to, do you have to sometimes get in there and work it? right uh, to get it to where you can yeah absolutely i think some people approach it in a in too respectful a manner to the point where they're afraid to you know just do what needs to be done basically right do analog and digital tapes have to be treated differently not inherently not to me it's tape is tape right? one is analog which is going to be a thicker tape depending on you know the the mill thickness um digital tape will be the same but ultimately for what i'm doing at the end of the day no there's really no difference other than how you prep the tapes okay right digital tape again unless the dig tape is covered in mold and all that kind of the things which happens all the time the, the prep is generally the same. Get the tape together uh, if it needs to be baked, which anything post-1975 will generally need to be baked. Ampex for sure. Some scotch, not so much. Uh, but you'll tend to bake it anyway just to be on the safe side, right? And yeah. things like that. Um, digital tape, you have to bake it as well at this point. Okay? Not as long, certainly, right? You know, a, a reel of two inch 24 track analog, I'll start with 12 hours hmm. and put it up on the machine, you know, and 
see how it reacts, you know, 15 seconds, play it. And, you know, if stuff looks like it's still coming off on the heads, uh, back in the oven for another seven, eight hours, something like that. The digital tape, a uh, couple hours, you yeah. know, three, three, four hours. That's all it takes for the half inch because it's so much thinner and it doesn't have the same, you know, the, the binder layer isn't as thick. There's not as much moisture to pull out of the digital tapes. But at this point, they still suffer from it. People are surprised when I say I've got to bake the digital tapes. It's digital. Why you don't, you don't have to bake digital tape? And I still magnetic particles, magnetic particles on Myler. So yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's more the 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 moisture that gets absorbed right into the binder layer yeah. of it. That's the real problem. That's the the sticky shedness, as they call it. So. They'll say to me, you don't have to bake digital tape. And I'll look at them and say, excuse me, what was that last word you used? <laughs> oh, tape. Oh, that's right. Tape. Tape is tape is, is tape. Some is analog, some is digital. But at the end of the day, it's tape. And you got to deal with what, uh, you know, you have to do to get it uh, done. I have to bake. I've baked cassettes, dat tapes, 1630 tapes, the big humatics. You just put the whole thing in the oven. I just had to do it last week uh, for a client. So, uh, yeah, you just, uh, it's all the same but different. It, you know, it's inherently the same, but how you treat it and deal with it to get it to the point where you can play it and make a successful transfer and get your get the job accomplished for the client is, again, the same but slightly variant. Is there one format that you're still looking for that you can't find or you get requests for and you can't do anything? Mm, not so far. Luckily, knock wood, I've been able to satisfy everybody in all the different formats because I have pretty much everything, the meat of the matter, that's for sure, in, in large and wide. I mean, you know, two inch 24 track, two inch 16, one inch eight track, one inch 16, half inch 16, half inch eight track, all the multi track formats two-track, you know, formats, cassette, dad, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, and, uh, and on and on. There's other uh, esoteric, I guess, formats that I don't really see across my plate too much, like quarter-inch eight-track. Mm, yeah, right. Or 12-track, one-inch 12-track. Well, well, the one-inch 12, yeah, 12-track, exactly. You know, um, uh, so I've got a quarter-inch eight-track machine. It works great. I've only used it maybe once in the last three years, right? Because that's really obscure. Um, the Akai 12-track digital system, okay, I've got one of those. I've never gotten a call for it uh, and things like that. So I'm constantly buying <clears throat> things as I see them come up, okay? Just on the thinking of... I might need it one day, and while the machine's in great working shape, let's grab it and we'll just have it, just even to preserve a version of that particular machine at some point to have. Because I won't be doing this for, you know, there'll the hopefully come a day where I might <laughs> say retire, whatever, you know, or something, whatever that word means, right? And um, so everything I have. Uh, you know, eventually, maybe one day, way down the line, you know, in a decade or two, I can uh, just sort of, uh, you, you know, hand off to someone who wants to continue doing this 
very worthy work uh, that I think, uh, you know, people, people need. So, so I'm always on the lookout uh, for new stuff, always grabbing new gear and noise reduction, whatever is, as I see it, because it's becoming harder to find. Is there one thing that you wish your clients knew before they come to you that would make your life easier? Yes, that I can't predict how long things are going to take, okay, as I get into them. The big question is, how long is how long will this take? And uh, a lot of it is, most of it is, I'm not sure. I can give you a good guess, you know, an estimated, educated guess, but I can't tell you how long. And that, most of that is also sight unseen. I'll get calls from prospective clients or clients that say, hey, I've got these tapes and it's, I got six of these and, and okay, what condition are the tapes in? I don't know. I haven't opened them up. I haven't seen them. And I said, okay, well, you know, they could be covered in mold. They could be the, you know, they probably will need to get baked. They could have these other issues. There's whole, so many different things, you know, and other problems that can result with the tape itself over time. And, uh, so they end up asking, you know, how much time, I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't even seen the tapes, you know, it's like, you know, how long will the operation take before you've ever seen the patient? Yeah. Yeah. So that's can be difficult and tricky to kind of give people an idea of that. I tend to say, bring the material over. Let's have a look. Let's see what you got. Let's go through everything. Let's see the state of everything. And that'll help me give you a better, a better estimation. So, uh, and then just have a chance to sit. And as we go through the material, the tapes they have, just maybe educate them a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, in regards to what needs to be done, okay, to get it. That's really the the, the thing is, um, uh, you know, trying to give the clients a better understanding of the prep work and that it's all in the preparation. The actual transfer itself is easy. That's simple. That's you hit record on Pro Tools, okay, you've got your A to D converters, you hit play on the tape machine, and it goes over. That's, that's the simple part, the hard part and the part where you really need to be focused and pay attention is always the prep work, like anything in life, how well anything goes is all dependent on your preparedness, right? How much you've, you've, you know, put in at a time to get the tapes together, clean them scrub them, deal with any issues, it's, you know, right, replace splices, replace leaders, all that sort of, the work that's required to get you to being able to make the transfer. Are multi-tracks more difficult to work with? No, it's all the same. They just have more tracks, but inherently it's all the same. The tape is the tape is the tape, be it a two-track tape or you know, half a quarter inch, two track, half inch, two track, half inch, four track, two inch. It's, uh, you know, the only, uh, the only thing that really changes in your approach, uh, to it is how many tracks you open up and you're going to record over. Right. I mean, otherwise it's all relatively the same Dolby, non Dolby, et cetera. It's all, yeah, that's it. 
Do people ever come to you with old digital formats? Sure. Well, define old digital formats at this point in time. Oh, they're all old. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, but like an, S, an SD2 or some sort of, you know, custom format for one particular machine. No, that you don't really see uh, too much. I mean, in terms of the, the formats, you know, there's the standard ones, the, the open reel formats, okay, two-track digital be it of a, a Pro-Digi or a Dash format, right? All the Mitsubishi tapes are Pro-Digi. Yeah. So anything that was recorded, say, on an X86 or X86 HS machine or an original X80, uh, and that's not even Pro-Digi format, the original X80, the original guy, okay, is straight PCM, which is why the oldest machine sounds the best as well okay um and i've got one of those and it works great and uh uh so you know the the they're, they're all kind of old dats d88s adat tapes um things like that it, you know they're they're all kind of the same i mean you know the other thing i get a lot of i'll be frank is is uh restoring uh, the old computer based data tape backups that we would do in the early 90s with Pro Tools where hard drives cost a fortune back then, right? You know, $400 for a, you know, 10 gig, the hard drive. It was like, it was crazy, right? Back in those days. So we would use Retrospect. Yes, I remember. Yeah. You recall the old Retrospect, okay? And with an Exabyte tape data drive or AIT drive, and we'd you know, use retrospect and, and store it over on, on the data tape stuff. And people would then wipe the drives and use them again. So I've come across a lot of that stuff as well. Uh, so luckily for me, you know, being a little bit of a, a gear pack rat, I still had the old computer and all the software I needed and the old SCSI cards and cables and all that thing uh and the tape drives and and stuff like that so i've been restored yeah which people are just like you could do this oh my god <laughs> yeah Cause, right yeah because that's that's you know that's probably the most oddball in terms of the and only because of what you need the older auto scuzzy cards and the cables and all the proper drivers and the software and a computer that runs os 10.4 Okay, and and you're back in the world of FireWire 400 for any computer like that, right? So, and people, people, uh, you know, those. How long will it take? And I'll give them an idea. Oh my God, that's like how long? And I'll say to them, but you think 1992? You're back in the world of FireWire 400 and all that, and it just it's not like today where you just go boom and zip, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah very cool bill very cool yeah it's a lot of fun i'll tell you i i, I enjoy doing it the things have worked out very well for me in the fact that I'm, I'm doing this it's a worthy thing to do i enjoy the work the the labels need it um individuals need it we need to preserve as much music as we possibly can before any more of it is lost to the sands of time be it natural or otherwise, right? Fire, earthquake, et cetera, that kind of thing. Uh, I still do a lot of mixing, 
okay, for clients as well, okay, that just call and say, hey, can you mix this? Um, or clients I'm doing the, the archiving work for at this point uh, as well now, okay, who, uh, hey, Bill, you, you know, we need all, you made rec, this is what you've been doing your whole life. When you're done transferring it, mix it all for us because we need it all in a, you know, what are we going to do with a 24 track, right? So go ahead, go ahead and, and do that. Um, you know, one of the things I'm going to be doing, okay, when I make my transition, okay, and end up where I'm going to land permanently with everything is also put up an Atmos setup as well and be able to offer that to clients and be able to sort of upsell, so to speak, yeah. okay, uh, the mixing services and, and things like that. So I'll have a room, you know, that is more conducive to all of the archiving stuff, restoration, okay, um, fixing any kind of issues, buzzes, pops. I mean, Isotope RX is a godsend. No kidding, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so there's a, a, a lot of that kind of stuff you end up doing once you do transfer the tapes, okay, and that's part of the cleanup process, I suppose, is that as well. Uh, but then all the mixing stuff, things like that. So it'll just be, uh, it'll give me the opportunity to offer more services to my clients, you know, more of uh, the, the music-based mixing stuff uh, as it was, but also the, the archiving thing. But, uh, but the archiving thing is kind of the meat of the matter for the moment, you know, um, but I couldn't do that at United. The room wasn't conducive for it okay the, there was just a as you saw a drywall and with that crazy slanted ceiling so i couldn't really uh do a lot of mixing work for clients but i'd like to get back into that not only to like i say have it as another service i can offer but i i enjoy the creativity how do people get in touch with you people can get in touch with me currently you can email me directly okay at billsmithaudio at gmail.com that's probably the best and easiest way. Uh, they can find me on Facebook as well. Just search for Bill Smith Audio on Facebook and they can uh, send me a direct message through there. Or you can call me as well, you know, on my 818-645-8263. You know, a phone call, you know, is still appreciated in these days of, you know, text messaging and, and things like that or send me a text message there. So. That's currently the, those three ways are the best ways to get hold of me. And then once I get uh, into a new room where I'm going to land, we'll get the website up, okay, and, and debut all of that. Obviously, I'll, I'll have a direct website address with pictures of all the gear and equipment that people can kind of, you know, look at and they love to. But they can see all that stuff on, on the Facebook page as well. But, yeah, those are, those, those are the best ways to get a hold of me. So, and, and I love doing this, man. I just, you know, it's a great life. You know, we're very fortunate. I'm very fortunate. I've never worked a day in my life per se. It's been a, you know, a, a privilege to be able to do something you love for your life. Not many people get to do that. You can find out more about Bill at Bill Smith Audio on Facebook or you can get in touch with them at billsmithaudio at gmail.com. That's billsmithaudio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, 
audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 